from ABC in New York. This is World News Tonight, Sunday, with Sam Donaldson. Good evening. The U.S. Embassy in Tehran has been invaded and occupied by Iranian students. The Americans inside have been taken prisoner. And according to a student spokesman, will be held as hostages until the deposed Shah is returned from the United States, where he's receiving medical treatment for cancer. Some reports say as many as 90 Americans may be involved. Others say as few as 35. Welcome to CentCast, the official podcast of the United States Central Command, America's premier warfighting headquarters. Coming to you from Tampa Bay, Florida, with your host, Joe Puccino. Hey there, welcome to CentCast episode 5. Episode Joe, 5. Joe Pacino here. Joe Crespo out here. We have been talking about this subject really, I think, every episode, just mm -hmm. about. Right, we, we've teed it up and we've preambled it, the 1979 Iranian hostage crisis. That's, that's what we're talking about here. It was one of the critical events that led to the formation of CentCom four mm -hmm. years later. So we have on here a, the man who literally wrote the book on this, on this subject, David Farber. He wrote uh, the 2005 book, Taken Hostage, The Iran Hostage Crisis and America's First Encounter with Radical Islam. I'll be talking to him solo, but you'll hopefully be listening. You're welcome to stand. No, for sure, yeah. I'm definitely interested in listening. And, and what I'm mostly curious about in this topic, what happened, yeah. why did it happen, and then how did it, how did it specifically transform us uh, as a military power for the next 40 years, four decades? Yeah, so, you know, just maybe to tee it up a little bit here, you know, November 4th, 1979, Iranian militants stormed the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. They took 66 Americans captive. Okay, some of those captives, some of those hostages were, were later released. But this started the Iran hostage crisis. This captivated the American public for 444 days. So over a year. Over years, and it marked really, as David talks about in the book, it marked our first confrontation with the forces of radical Islam. So, you know, at the time, uh, Iran is going from a secular government, a secular leadership, to a Islamic revolution. And, you know, David Farber, in the book, he, he looks at hundreds of, of declassified government documents. He takes a real studied look at this, at... at the reaction in Tehran, the reaction throughout Iran, the reaction throughout the United States, and the Carter administration. And it's a, uh, a really vivid book. It does reveal the way the Carter administration engaged with, with terrorism. And for the first time, this country was dealing with Islamic fundamentalism. And look, uh, it's like people always say, past is prologue. So it's, this is, a, I think, an important discussion, an important episode. Absolutely. And, and up until this point, 1979, Relationships between the U.S. and Iran are not as, in, they're not in turmoil as they're about to shift into. Well, we've we talked about this on episode two, on episode two and episode three, I think. But Iran had been a partner for the United States. Right. And, you know, Kissinger called Iran our cop in the Middle East. And so we had a very positive uh, we leaned on Iran for security and stability in that in that part of the world, and now that it all changed, all flipped on its head. And you had in here in the midst of this, or towards the end of this, the Iran-Iraq War. So that that's part of it. And so, you know, it's uh, we, we hope uh, we'll talk about all these things with David, and we'll hope you'll sit here and listen, and then maybe we'll talk about it. You are listening to Sendcast, the official podcast of the United States Central Command. 
America's premier warfighting headquarters from Tampa, Florida. Most people really, I think in America, uh, David, you know, they think of this story, they kind of start the story in uh, November 1979, and, and you explain in the book why that's a short view, a wrong view of looking at this. Really, the story starts in uh, 1953, maybe even further beyond that, but why does the story start in 1953? Well, I think you're right, and I think it's a classic case of how America sometimes see the world and how the rest of the world sees us. Yeah. So from our perspective, Iran really enters the American imagination with the horrors of the Iran hostage-taking in November 1979. Certainly for Iranians, the story begins in 1953, mm -hmm. when the United States really for the first time becomes involved in Iranian affairs. And after the British had basically given up on their empire in the Near East, the United States began step-by-step step entering into that geographical realm. And with British persuasion, the United States decides to support uh, the regime of the Shah of Iran. And we support that regime by helping to create a coup that overthrew a democratically elected leftist government in Iran and replaced that government with the Shah, who basically vowed to be an American ally. So their story of Iran-U.S. relations begins in 1953. Most of us don't remember that prehistory we started with the debacle of 1979. Mm -hmm. And so, as you, as you stated, uh, you know, we supported a coup that overthrew Mohammad Mossadegh. You know, if you think about your, in, in the book it's mentioned, you think about uh, June 1969, uh, President Richard Nixon, he establishes and, and I think really codifies the Nixon doctrine that the U.S. is going to offer money and military equipment to partners to fight the Soviets and, and Soviet proxies. And one of those partners is by this point is, is Iran. Yeah, that's certainly right. I mean, what really happens is Nixon is looking straightforwardly at what's going on in Vietnam when he mm -hmm. takes over the presidency in January 1969. And he realizes that what's happening, at least from his political perspective, is untenable. Mm -hmm. So looking directly at South Vietnam, he begins the process we have ever since called Vietnamization. Put the military in Vietnam in charge of their own war. And that specific strategic decision has implications throughout other parts of the world. We look toward Korea, for example, and stress that they need to take more responsibility in the South for taking on their nemesis in the North. And then thirdly, and it's a little slower in the making, we partner up with the Shah of Iran saying, you, sir, you can help us manage the Near East. And in particular, remember at that point, Iran is a neighbor to the Soviet Union. You can help us stand off the red threat to that region. So yeah, the United States under the Nixon doctrine begins to arm and weaponize and militarize some of our key allies. And hopefully the idea was, it was a good idea, mm -hmm turn over some of the defense responsibilities to the countries in question. You know, the, 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 maybe the next chapter in the story, and obviously we're plowing through a, a complicated story, but, uh, you know, we're, we're telling a story that leads up to 1979. Uh, October 1973, the, there's, we told this in, in the last, we had a full episode on this, OPEC uh, announces an oil embargo, and this introduces a little bit of a crisis within the United States in terms of oil. 
And perhaps the United States and the U.S. government is really thinking about this part of the world, really thinking about the Middle East very deeply for the first time in a long time. I think that's right. I mean, there had been concerns before that time about oil in the Persian Gulf. The United States was not blind to the vulnerabilities we face in having so much oil coming from that region. But we thought we had a good partner in the Shah. After 1973, the Shah, don't forget, joins with OPEC mm -hmm. in helping to raise the price of oil in the region and globally. But the Shah does do something different than many of his Arab compatriots. He continues to sell oil to the United States despite that oil embargo. He even goes so far as to sell oil to Israel, what will eventually be called in Khomeini's Iran, the little Satan. So he does prove to be a good partner, albeit a profiteering partner in that part of the world. Yeah, and then over the next six years, you know, as we go into the 70s, I think his popularity wanes. I think there's uh, some moments where people inside of Iran are, are viewing him as sort of an elitist. I mean, what's, what's the view of the Shah here as we get into the mid-70s and then into the late 70s? So in Iran, there is a kind of multi-constituent anti-Shah movement. And it ranges from secular, even leftist university students to rural Islamist folk who would like to see a much more religious state. Remember, the, the Shah of Iran is a modernizer. So he's pro-West. He's trying to create a secular society in Iran. He's increased the number of students going to college by orders of magnitude. He's given women rights in Iran that are unprecedented in that part of the world. He's creating what he calls, you know, a, a peacock revolution. He's trying to use his throne, the peacock throne, to create a modern Iran that can compete with its Western neighbors. Unfortunately, he does so through through a authoritarian regime. He does so with the help of his secret police, the infamous Savak. And so he's trying to do something pretty tricky, which others are doing at the same time. Use authoritarian measures to create a more secular modern society. It creates a lot of enemies from the left, the right, from the green and the red, the Islamic forces as well as leftist forces in that country. And as you suggest, year by year, He's losing core constituency after core constituency. By 1977, he's under duress. There are definitely public protests against what he's doing. And by 78, all hell has broken loose. The Shah of Iran has basically lost control of the people of Iran. Maybe you can describe this. Obviously, you can describe it better than I can. But, but it, as we go into 1979, it continues to, to devolve. And then, and then there's maybe a little bit of a flashpoint October 23rd, 1979, he's transported to the United States for treatment for cancer, basically for cancer treatment in a New York hospital. And then, you know, wh why is that such a flashpoint? Maybe I'm oversimplifying it a little bit, but wh why was that like a, such a toxic thing that happened? No, I think you're right. So remember, by this time, the Shah is long gone from Iran. So January, I think it's January 16th, mm -hmm. he leaves Iran, flies his own plane out of Iran and goes into exile. And he sort of is like a, you know, a ghost ship wandering from country to country where nobody particularly wants him. He goes to Egypt, he goes to Morocco, he goes to Panama. And every place he goes, he's, he's not particularly welcome. And as you said, the, the, the poor guy, give him a break as a human being, is suffering from pancreatic cancer. Mm. And he's trying to find decent medical service somewhere. Obviously, the best place in the world to get that medical care is us, mm -hmm. the United States. <laughs> Jimmy Carter feels caught between you know, two, two forces that are not going to get him anything. 
He knows that if he lets the Shah of Iran into the United States, he's going to face backlash in the Near East, especially in Iran. So he tries for months to keep the Shah out of Iran. He faces immense pressure from, I guess, what we call the old East Coast establishment, from the Rockefeller family with whom the Shah had banked, Chase Manhattan, from Henry Kissinger, and from a host of other sort of old establishment types who feel maybe obligated to the Shah after 25 years of service. There's some financial interests that probably are at play as well. So Jimmy Carter finally accedes to the pressure. And yep, the Shah of Iran comes to the United States for medical treatment and all hell breaks loose in Iran. From the Iranian perspective, again, this is that dual perspective. We see it as a kind of humanitarian gesture to this poor dying Shah, an old ally. Many Iranians see this as somehow 1953 revisited. Somehow, magically maybe, the United States has invited the Shah to the United States so that he can work with the CIA and other forces in the US to somehow regain control of Iran. They don't even buy that the man's sick. They think that's some sort of you know, BS story that's being circulated to allow the Shah back in the US where he can work his nefarious ways. So two very different visions of what happened. And yeah, there'd been basically a tinderbox all this time to use yeah. a cliche. In Iran, the Shah's visit to the U.S. just lights that tinderbox and bam, things blow up. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because there was, and you alluded to it, there was debate inside the administration on this point about, about really what to do and how to handle it. Was, was there not? Absolutely. I mean, there was a strong force, especially in the State Department, always more cautious perhaps than any other branch of the U.S. government when it comes to international affairs, yeah. who essentially predicted this. Oh, said wow. if we let the Shah of Iran in, all hell will break loose. The Iranians will see it differently. Uh, the National Security Council, perhaps some of uh, the Shah's old military allies in the United States, and again, as I suggest, very powerful folks who've been involved in the Nixon administration and others, mm-hmm. Cold War warriors par excellence, said, we owe the man. He was our ally. Yeah. We've got to let him in. But a huge debate. This was not a consensus decision. And Carter resisted to the very last. So... Okay, so he comes into New York, he comes into the United States, and what's the reaction in Iran? Yeah, almost instantly, as soon as people know, things explode. And the first thing that happens is is very relevant to the story we're trying to tell here, which is massive protests begin at the U.S. Embassy Mm -hmm. in Tehran. I'm not talking hundreds of people. I'm not talking thousands of people. Tens of thousands of people flock to the U.S. Embassy. Basically, it's a huge embassy. At that point, it might have been the biggest we had in the world and surround the place. And we know it's going to happen November 4th, just a couple of weeks after these protests begin. They're going to breach the walls. They're going to breach the gates. And the hostage crisis will begin. What was the goal of these students? Then they, they get inside. Did they know exactly what they wanted to do and how long they wanted to do it? Did they know what they want to do with hostages? Was there always a plan, get inside and get the hostages? I'm a little more humble about this than when I wrote the book at first. From what we knew at the time and what seemed to be true for decades after, there was no plan. There was a relatively small group, I'm talking dozens of people out of that crowd of tens of thousands, who wanted to break into the embassy and have, they claimed, a kind of sit-in. I mean, these are 60s folks in a way yeah you know these are influenced by all those movements of the 60s and early 70s around the world mm-hmm. and they think they'll have a peaceful sit-in and somehow 
persuade the United States to act in a way that's more amenable to their goals. What we do know is almost immediately, within probably less than a couple hours, this so-called sit-in turns much harder. And somebody's brought in weapons, there's pistols, I mean, there's small arms involved, and this so-called peaceful protest quickly takes on the guise of a hostage-taking. And remember, there aren't many people left in the embassy at this point. The embassy is working on a skeleton crew, but there's still Marine guards. There's still a core constituency of staffers there, and they're all taken hostage. Everybody who's in that embassy who's American is taken hostage. There's not a big staff in the embassy because we, we reduced diplomatic relations after the Shah left, so we, we pulled everybody back to the United States? That's right. There was a massive drawdown. There, okay. there was a clear sense of, of yeah. presence danger okay. at the embassy. But they didn't close the embassy. I mean, again, people have been second-guessing this ever since. The embassy wasn't closed. It wasn't shuttered. There wasn't a large defense contingent in there to protect the diplomats that were left. Who's behind the hostage-taking? Who You're talking about bringing in weapons and going from a sit-in to a more violent situation. Who's behind all this? So there were several groups kind of vying for who maybe would break into the embassy, who would do what to the U.S. personnel. But the people who take the lead are a group that, at least in English, basically are students following the line of the Ayatollah, I think is the best translation. Mm -hmm. So these are people who are loyal to Ayatollah Khomeini, the longtime leader of the Shiites in Iran, who'd mm -hmm. been in exile for many years until he was able to return victoriously in 1979. And they're people interested in creating well, to some extent, what's happened in Iran, a theocracy under the guise of Islamic leadership. So these are a very particular radicalized faction of this multi-constituent group that wanted to end the Shah's regime and start something new. And they're, they're students? These are young people? Again, I'm a little more cautious than I might once have been. Okay. But overwhelmingly, yes, they're literally students with perhaps a few other people involved. Okay, and, and the uh, we maybe should now introduce this piece about the Ayatollah, because he'd been criticizing the Shah from overseas. Can you explain that? His role, you know, in the 70s while the Shah was in power. So again, remember, the Shah is creating a secular revolution in Iran. Oh, yeah. And Iran, and in now, is a very religious country. There's a lot of uh, devout Islam, uh, Islamists there, people who wanted a religious political society. Khomeini is the leader of that group. And he's been exiled since the mid-1960s, and he ended up in, I think he's in Paris, he's in France at that point. The French have given him essentially carte blanche to be a propagandist for his beliefs and his desire to create a theocracy in Iran. And from France, he has been delivering that message consistently year after year after year. So finally, when the Shah departs in January, soon thereafter, my favorite part of this, coming back in a Chevy Blazer, mm -hmm. comes right. Ayatollah Khomeini to lead this new uncertain revolution. Nobody quite knows what shape it's going to take yet. Yeah. It, it is still, I think, maybe maybe it's one of the unknowns, is, is that was there a, an, an intent to take hostages for a long time? Was there intent to get something out of the hostages? Was there... It just it just seems to me, and in reading your book and, and reading the Mark Bowden book and, and some other material on this, the hostage takers were in some way at a certain point taken hostage by the situation themselves in that maybe this this happened for longer than they intended. 
the, the reaction inside the United States was perhaps beyond what they anticipated. And they maybe didn't know exactly what to do other than to maintain this, this situation for, you know, until there was some kind of breakthrough deal. I don't know. Am I wrong? No, you make a good point. I, I think especially in the opening days, there were no clear goals. There was no certainty about the duration of this event. There was no certainty about who was in charge of this event. What happens is fairly quickly, both the students and the revolutionary government in Iran realizes like, oh my God, this is a success beyond our any dream we might have happened. The whole world is watching. The United States is, is spellbound, angry, furious, anxious and upset, not sure what to do about it. And it also is a unifying moment in Iran. So again, it's hard to find a comparable event in our own history, maybe the Tea Party, going back to our revolution, yeah. which is to say sort of a bunch of guys get together and do some sort of crazy stunt. Mm -hmm. And suddenly people are like, yeah, yeah, good. Show them who's boss. The British aren't our bosses. And in this case, for the Iranians, the U.S. isn't our boss. Look, we've humiliated these people. So again, remember what I said, this is a multi-factional constituency of revolutionaries. Mm -hmm. They all get behind this idea. Yeah, and, and humiliation is really was, I think, a, a seething humiliation seems to have been the, the reaction in the United States. And the PBS documentary on this that was released a couple of months ago, I think does a good job with, with the original file footage and, and original like man on the street type interviews uh, of depicting this in that, you know, Americans were seeing American dignitaries and American officials, American citizens in blindfolds, you know, you know, w w with their hands behind their backs in the U.S. Embassy. And there was a sense that we couldn't protect our own citizenry. And this is what people listening to this maybe should understand. And you do a great job in the book of describing this is this comes after we'd lost the Vietnam War. And this comes after Watergate. And this comes after the Tet Offensive. And so there is a sense that, you know, we can't protect our own. We can't impose our power, perhaps, anymore. And all of this is manifest around the, the, this situation in, in the immediate, in the early days. And, you know, this is certainly changes the view and shapes the view that the country has on, on President Jimmy Carter, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely right. I, I mean, Vietnam, Watergate, OPEC, oil crunch, mm -hmm. stagflation, one body blow after another. And as you suggest, I think the American people were reeling. They were looking for leadership. They elect this guy, this unknown governor out of Georgia, in part because he said, I'll tell the truth. Mm -hmm. I'll be transparent with you. I won't be a Nixon. I'll be somebody you can trust. Well, I think they were right, the American people, to trust Carter, but he was not perceived, and I think to some extent was not, a strong, powerful, charismatic leader who could guide Americans successfully through what was gonna be for any president, an immensely challenging series of events. So after all those body blows, and Jimmy Carter unable to figure out how to resolve the situation quickly, yeah, people were just, stunned in the United States. Are you critical of the media coverage of the hostage crisis? Do you think that it- I, I am not, portrayed I'm it? not particularly. I mean, this is a big debate and people can argue about this one way or the other. My sense were the American people were fascinated by this. 
And the president, yeah. Jimmy Carter, kind of played to that fascination. Again, remember, this is a guy looking just one year down the road to being reelected, he hoped. So he thought he could seize on this issue, make it his own, resolve it effectively, and help ride his way to the White House for a second term. So it isn't just the media inventing this, Carter played to it. And I think the American citizenry were just absorbed by this event. And, you know, with good reason, Can imagine it today, 66 people were taken hostage at the beginning. Those are Americans. Think what happened with Benghazi and the horrors there. We became fascinated with that. So I don't blame the media. And actually CNN, which is is new, and a few other media outlets, I think actually do a pretty good job trying to explain what's going on. The next, just to maybe advance the story a little bit, the next real dark moment, or maybe the I guess the darkest moment in all of this, is you know April of 1980, the administration draws up a plan to rescue the hostages, and it is, of course, a disaster, Operation Eagle Claw. Again, a very controversial decision. Carter had been going back and forth this. We can now read some of the National Security Council documents, and we can watch people with some good expertise and people with some less good expertise trying to figure out if there's a military solution to this debacle. I mean, it is clear by April, it's, it's probably clear by late February, that diplomatic solutions are not going to work. Yeah. The Khomeini administration is just locked into this. So what do you do? And once again, you get this big divide between the State Department, the National Security Council. Uh, the military is, is basically weighing in cautiously on this story. They're aware that at this point they don't have the kind of capacity certainly we would have today to pull off a mission like this. Mm -hmm. This is brand new days for special operations. And so there's no certainty that this mission can be successful. And again, back and forth they go within the administration about what can be done. The plan eventually is created. I'm not going to tell a bunch of military guys how it worked. You guys can figure that one out better than me. Mm -hmm. But undermanned, perhaps technologically underdeveloped. Basically, it's the classic case. Anything that could go wrong did go wrong. The weather didn't cooperate. The landing site wasn't the right site. The intelligence wasn't good. One mistake after another is probably the, the shortest answer to it. And yeah, guys die. It's a disaster. We don't guys come died, close. Guys die before that. they even get into the mission. Two, two aircraft collide. Yeah. Um, we never get to the point where we're actually trying to rescue the hostages. It, yeah. it all falls apart it all at falls the first apart. landing site well outside of Tehran. Yeah, and, and Operation Eagle Claw and Desert One is, is, is a topic. It's got to be a topic for another episode yeah. of Sendcast because it's, it is unto itself its own story and it deserves its own story. So how, how now is that received? I guess it must have been just horrifically in the American press. I mean, how is that received? Yeah, it's it's seen as Carter's failure. Yeah. Again, you know, commander in chief, the buck stops there. Mm -hmm. And he's the one who takes the fall for it. And he, he he does take the fall for it. He comes out publicly and announces what happened, mournfully uh, tells the American people the loss of service members. And basically his chance of winning the presidency after that is next to nothing. It was my decision to cancel it when problems developed in the placement of our rescue team for a future rescue operation. The responsibility is fully my own. In the aftermath of the attempt, we continue to hold the government of Iran responsible for the safety and for the early release of the American hostages who have been held so long. The United States remains determined to bring about their safe release 
at the earliest date possible. Several months later, now we're into September 1980, uh, the Iran-Iraq war starts, really by surprise here. Uh, what's the impetus for the Iran-Iraq war and, and how does that, what influence does it have on the hostage situation? Yeah, I mean, so if the United States is going through hell, you could say the same about Iran during this period of time. Mm. And Iran is fractured, it's divided, there's still contestation over the revolution. I think our friend Saddam Hussein sees an opening here and he thinks he can grab some contested territory in Iran and take advantage of the situation. Uh, he's probably also wondering to what extent the U.S. supplied military uh, weaponry of the Iranian army. Remember, we've supplied all the Iranians' weaponry. So now they're in a bit of trouble in terms of their weaponry. Can they maintain it? They've been, they've been basically dependent on U.S. mechanics and U.S. trainers for a long period of time. So... This is a war of opportunity, and it turns into just, well, mass slaughter between the two sides, with the Iranians using human waves of basically people they suspected of not being loyal to the revolution. I mean, just a nightmare of a situation for the Iranian people, not necessarily the government. And uh, what this does is it, to some extent, starts to decenter the hostages from the Khomeini regime's uh, primary uh, needs for the following months. And it's at that point that it's a great story. Uh, the Algerian government, who'd never been exactly friends with the United States, becomes basically a peace broker. And eventually it's going to be the Algerian diplomats who help resolve the situation by creating a broker deal that will get both countries, Iran and the United States, out of uh, something that's no longer in interest of either country. Yeah. That's how this will eventually end. And it must have felt at that point like like there was no there's no way there's no off ramp towards this thing and and uh, it probably felt endless and and it seems like both parties wanted out. I think that's right. There no so the Khomeini regime because of the war in part has been able to resolve national unity again often by murdering dissidents, yeah. but they've achieved their goal. They have a revolutionary government. It's a theocracy. They don't need the hostages for political purposes anymore. So now it's a matter of like, how the hell do you get out of this situation? Yeah. And hopefully for the Iranian perspective, get some of the Shah's money back. From our perspective, get our people home safely with an emphasis on safely. And it's during this time, really, September, you know, going into the fall, uh, going into the winter of 1980, that Jimmy Carter, is, as you alluded to, is up for re-election. And the Republican candidate, uh, Hollywood actor Ronald Reagan, offers really a different vision of America, a different version of America, one that's, uh, you know, kind of strong, muscular, almost like pre-Vietnam, you know, optimistic, the shining city on the hill, and uh, a country that has, you know, will be respected and in some ways feared, and he, w <laughs> he wins in an overwhelming landslide <laughs> on uh, November 4th, 1980. Absolutely right. I, I think one of the things a lot of pundits and commentators didn't understand in 1980 was that the American people were divided. We were angry. We were upset. We were frustrated. And I think that was something that Ronald Reagan understood really well. And that was his message. Yes, strength. Yes, we would be powerful again. But he emphasized that love of country. And I think that was a brilliant message combined with the sense what we've been doing for 10 years didn't work, and we're going to have to rethink our posture in the world. 
And he is, he takes office, Ronald Reagan takes office as our 40th president, January 20th, 1981, and also <laughs> January 20th, 1981, the hostages are freed. Yeah, like, like basically they're watching their clock, the Iranians. Okay, Carter, the guy we despise is gone. They didn't realize that Reagan was going to be even tougher. Yeah. The hostages are freed. They waited, they waited to the transition that actually occurred before they freed the U.S. hostage. By that time, 52 Americans still held hostage. In Iran, and you know, and that really was a that really was a consideration then that uh, they wanted to humiliate Carter to the to the maximum extent they could. One more time into the breach, they were going to just give him a front a punch to the face. You, you hear when you look, when you look into the story and you study the story, you hear some, you know, I guess accusations or or some questions that the Reagan people were talking to the Iranians you know, in the lead up to the election. you find anything like that? I never found a document that would prove that accusation. Uh, others have claimed that they have seen evidence that there was some meddling going on. In my book, I, I, I show no evidence of that. Yeah, I guess, that, you know, just to give voice to it, it, it the, the accusation is that Reagan, through proxies, was conferring with the Iranians to keep the hostage crisis going and then culminate, but basically keep it going to, to darken Jimmy Carter the, to the extent possible ahead of the election and then to culminate and free the hostages uh, post-election. Post so I, you, know, I, you can see how people are drawn to that conclusion, though. Yeah. I, I have seen no proof of that okay. that I find convincing. Okay, good. All right. So how were the hostages treated? There's, it seems like... Um, you hear depictions from, you know, many of them are still alive, and you hear them talk about it. It seems, it seems pretty gruesome in some, in some descriptions. It seems humane in others. What, how, how were they overall, how were the hostages treated? Overall, they were treated like prisoners of vindictive, angry regime. Mm. So in the grand scheme of things, were they tortured on death? No. No one was killed. No one was uh, faced the kind of horrors that Savak, for example, had visited on Iranian dissidents. On the other hand, there were fake executions. Mm. There were punches thrown. There was humiliation. There was being kept in dark rooms for months at a time. And I do think it's important to add that after Operation Eagle Claw, things got worse. Mm. So at that point, there was a separation of the hostages. They were distributed more widely. They were no longer kept basically in the embassy in one place. And some hostages found themselves in the hands of sadistic bastards who did everything they could to make life miserable. Now, again, not killing them, not doing the worst things that are possible to do to another human being, but their lives were bad, real bad. Describe the fake executions. I mean, they were straight up pointing guns at people, pulling triggers, but thank God there were, you know, there were no bullets in the chamber. <laughs> David, how should we be thinking about this now? How should we process this? What, is it, what does it mean? T take us away with what this means for us. I think the Iran hostage crisis meant several different things, both in the political and the military and the international realms. Politically, it was a grim reminder to presidents that if they're going to get involved in some kind of debacle like this, they probably need to offload responsibility to somebody else. Jimmy Carter took personal responsibility for the hostages and it blew up in his face. So I think presidents have been learning about that ever since. <laughs> Militarily, it, it taught us a pretty tough lesson about the limits of the Nixon doctrine. 
Who can you trust? How much can your allies support you in a time of crisis? How much do you know about your allies and their posture? The worst thing that we learned about Iran was that we didn't know what was going on inside that country. So talk about a full employment act for the CIA and other intelligence agencies. Mm. This, this was real good for their business. Yeah. We trusted too much in Iran. We trust sometimes too much in our allies to be truthful with us. We probably, and it's a tricky thing to do, have to have our own independent resources to know what's happening. Internationally, again, this has changed our posture around the world towards how much we count on others to support our interests in various parts of the world and how much do we have to look after our own in alliance with those interests. So the Iran debacle, you know, really transformed us politically, militarily, and internationally. It was a, a major turning point in the history of the United States. David, thanks for joining CentCast, uh, the official podcast here for CentCom, but also thank you for uh, a really, not just a insightful book, but it's really, you know how to write. <laughs> you know how to write. I give you that. Taken Hostage is the book, The Iran Hostage Crisis in America's First Encounter with Radical Islam. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. You are listening to CentCast, the official podcast of the United States Central Command, America's premier warfighting headquarters from Tampa, Florida. Wow. That guy knows his, that guy knows the story, and it's a fascinating story. But it's such a rich story, and obviously we could have kept him on the line for another hour. And, and by the way, we do need to talk about, we do need to do an episode on Operation Eagle Claw and Desert right. One, because that's worthy of its own episode. But it's, there's so much to this story, and there's so much, I think, that we think we know about the Iranian hostage crisis that, that really is a little bit misunderstood. Right. It's fantasized in Hollywood. With the 2012 movie Argo, but uh, clearly I've never seen that movie. It's it, it's a fictional story, okay, uh, based on these events, but yeah. obviously completely different uh, take on and how the how the the resolution and the aftermath came about. Well, what would you because you sat here, you listened. What what did you take away from this, Crespo? Well, my first takeaway was just to understand a little bit deeper on what students of the of the followers of Ayatollah, right? I'm thinking students. And I, I immediately think of college-age kids. That's right. But these are students, so you have mature adults in combination with, with some younger folks. The mature adults that are leading these students. Right. So it's a cross-generational impact and, and the influence, and the level of influence mm -hmm. that these that these people have. It still echoes today. You I want to, yeah, you know, I, 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 just, I don't want to cut you off, but, but I do want to say that what's interesting is he talked about that this was a carryover from the 1960s movement. And the 1960s peace movement in the United States was a very secular movement. It was, you know, a free love type movement. And this is, is borrowing those same techniques, but in the service of radical Islam. It's an interesting dichotomy. Yeah. Another thing he said was that he compared the, this movement of the students. Yeah to what we would call, or we would equate to the Boston Tea Party. Yeah, right. A, a that's right. Desperate act to, 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 to get the attention of the sovereign or get the attention of the national leadership. Um, well, so and, and, and I to- I can relate to that piece sure. uh, a little bit. And to, to free, you know, for the Iranians to free themselves of what many considered their, their overlord, their American overlord. And, you know, in his telling, you could, yes, you can sympathize and empathize with the Iranian revolutionaries, in that sense. And then he brought it into the military operation. Yeah. And I thought, wow, what a, what a readiness issue. Right? Oh, I know. Before readiness was a thing, right, yeah. we learned it the hard way yeah. on how to plan, how to, how to gather the right intelligence, how to pre-position forces, how to do simple things like maintenance checks to avoid catastrophe. 
So it echoed in me that that phrase readiness yeah. really was born out of situations like this. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, a great discussion. It's a great book. The book, again, is uh, David Farber, F-A-R-B-E-R, mm -hmm. Taken Hostage. It's a 2005 book. And, you know, he's a thoughtful guy. David Farber is a professor of history at Temple University. He specializes in 20th century American history. Been He's written many books about America. His most recent is called America in the 1970s, which is exactly, you know, what it's about. This is about, uh, you know, this book is about America's response to this, this flashpoint, this really dark moment uh, in our history. And we thank him for writing the book, and we thank him for coming on Second.